Section 26 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 20 The Foreign Relations of Rome Down to the Conquest of Veii. While in the constitutional struggles of the people of Rome, political rights were more and more equally distributed among all her citizens, while the Republic was being consolidated and the administration improved and developed through a succession of reforms, the relations of Rome with her neighbours remained substantially unaltered, and her influence in Italy was not perceptibly increased. She continued to be one of the Latin cities, the largest of them, it is true, and the most powerful, but still her voice was probably never heard beyond the confines of Latium and the territories of her immediate neighbours all her energies were required to maintain the ground she already occupied and to ward off the hereditary enemies who year after year assailed her and her allies and sometimes succeeded in penetrating to her very walls the league with the latins and hernicans subsisted in form and substance though the allies of rome were no longer the unbroken people they had been when the league was concluded some of the latin cities such as corioli lay in ruins others had fallen into the hands of the volscians tusculum was kept in a state of almost perpetual alarm by the Achaeans, who had established a footing on mount algidus one of the spurs of the alban mount overlooking the plain of latium praeneste probably the strongest latin town after rome had become virtually an independent town and detached from the league it is clear that this league was in a state of gradual dissolution and that rome became more and more isolated and exposed fortunately this progress of destruction was arrested in the second half of the fifth century from four fifty to four hundred b c the attacks of the Achaeans and volscians became by degrees feebler whether it was that their strength was spent or that they themselves were now exposed in their rear to the attack of a fiercer mountain tribe the samnites rome and her allies obtained breathing time and as the internal dissensions between patricians and plebeians had been to some extent allayed by the decemviral legislation and the reforms which followed the attention of the republic could be successfully turned abroad and rome was able to profit by the favourable change it was natural that the calamities of war should press more heavily on the latin cities which surrounded rome like so many outlying bulwarks than on rome itself had the tide of war not been stemmed rome would in the end have been swept away herself but now she actually profited by the losses of her allies for her preponderance increased so greatly that she became in fact the head and mistress of those who had previously been in reality and still were in name her allies on equal terms it does not seem that rome made a very generous use of this altered position at least if we can judge of her general policy from an isolated instance we shall not be inclined to rate the public morality of rome very high the city of corioli was one of those ancient members of the league which had been utterly destroyed in the volscian wars the land which had formed the territory of corioli lay between the two cities of ardea and aricia and these cities actually fought for the possession of the deserted land at last in 446 bc they applied to rome to settle the dispute and the result was 
that rome claimed and occupied the disputed land for herself this was not a very honourable transaction and the roman historians themselves who report it seem heartily ashamed of it livy does not hesitate to call it a monument of public shame it shows what rome could now venture to do and it is interesting to note that this acquisition of the territory of corioli was the first extension of the roman dominions after the establishment of the republic of which we know it was the iniquitous beginning of a national policy which throughout retained the same character of rapacity and bad faith with which it was begun the next acquisitions were made on the eastern side of rome in 418 bc the town of labiki which had been originally latin and a member of the league but which had been for some time in the hands of the Achaeans, was at length retaken the same success attended the roman arms four years later in 414 b c when boli a town still further east was taken from the Achaeans. about the same time the volscians seem to have lost several of the towns which they had previously conquered in latium and it is even related that a roman army marched southward right through the land of the volscians and took the maritime town of anxur which was afterwards called terracina even more significant than these signs of returning strength in the wars with their eastern and southern foes the Achaeans and volscians was the spirit shown by the romans in a conflict which now broke out with the etruscans and which led after a severe and protracted struggle to the first great conquest of a large fortified town that could rival rome itself in extent population and power the great etruscan city of veii even before the important conquest of labiki had been made in 418 b c the romans had succeeded in clearing away on the left bank of the tiber the last remnant of the old ascendancy of the etruscans by the conquest and destruction in 426 of the small town of Fidenae. in this war aulus cornelius cossus the roman master of the horse slew it is said with his own hand lars tolumnius the veientine king who had come to the aid of Fidenae, and as was customary in rome he dedicated the spoils in the temple of jupiter Feretrius on the capital the spoils of lars tolumnius were the first spolia opima that is spoils of a hostile commander slain by a roman commander since romulus had slain acron the king of Antemnae. they were still in existence in the time of augustus whose attention was drawn to them when he caused the temple of jupiter for Retrius to be repaired we are told by livy that it was augustus himself who informed him that the inscription upon the coat of arms of tolumnius designated cornelius cosus as consul and not as master of the horse it appears therefore that if the said inscription was genuine and correctly read the war with Fidenae must have taken place not in 426 b c when aulus cornelius cosus was master of the horse but in 428 when he was consul whatever we may think of the chronological doubts thus created it is at any rate certain that about this time Fidenae was taken by the romans it seems to have been utterly destroyed and it was never rebuilt for in the age of Horace and Juvenal, Fidenae was alluded to as the picture of desolation and loneliness. The conquest of Fidenae was in itself important enough, as it delivered Rome from a very troublesome neighbour in its immediate vicinity. 
but it proved only the first step to a far more valuable acquisition on the side of Etruria. At a distance of about ten miles to the north of Rome was situated the large and powerful city of Veii, strongly fortified by nature and art. Veii was decidedly the leading town in southern Etruria, and probably occupied a position similar to that which Rome held in Latium. She was far superior to Rome in wealth and arts, and perhaps not inferior in public spirit and military organization. Her architects, sculptors, and artisans found employment in Rome, and first familiarized the ruder inhabitants of Latium with the more refined enjoyments and tastes of civilized life. In spite of this peaceful intercourse, the geographical proximity of the two towns made a hostile collision in the long run inevitable, and a serious war could end only in the destruction of one of the two, since the difference of their nationality and language made a peaceful amalgamation difficult or impossible. In the war which led to the destruction of Fidenae, the Veientines, as we have seen, had taken a part. Peace was concluded between the two states, and the Veientines seemed to have kept quiet, while Rome secured her ascendancy in Latium by the conquest of Labiki and Boli, and by successful war with the Volscians. This peace lasted until 406 BC. Of the causes which led to a renewal of hostilities, we know nothing. It is not unlikely that Rome engaged in the war as the ally and protector of some of the towns adjacent to Veii, especially Sutrium and Nepete, for we find that these towns were, after the destruction of Veii, the allies of Rome, and it is quite consistent with the spirit of Roman policy to interfere in the internal disputes of her neighbours, and to act the popular part of the protector of innocence against oppression, that is, of the weaker against the stronger, provided a material advantage could be obtained. About the same time the northern towns of Etruria were alarmed by the approach of the Gauls, who had recently crossed the Alps, invaded the north of Italy, and after having overrun the plain of the Po, gradually fought their way southwards to the more genial and fertile regions of central and southern Italy. Owing to this fatal circumstance, Veii was left destitute of the support of her allies in the north, and being thus isolated offered a tempting prize to the cupidity of the Romans. Whatever may have been the origin and cause of the war, the Romans, once engaged in it, carried it on with a perseverance and a singleness of purpose never shown before on such a scale, but which was eminently characteristic of their nation. Feeling that their military organization was deficient, they set about reforming it, and availed themselves of the services of a man who rose at the right moment to direct the energies of his countrymen. This was Marcus Furius Camillus, a hero destined to accomplish the victory over the mightiest enemy which Rome had as yet encountered, to be fondly called by his countrymen the second founder of Rome, and to close a long and glorious life by aiding in the great work of establishing concord between the hostile ranks of citizens. The Roman legions, as we know, did not consist of mercenaries serving for pay, nor of volunteers induced to take arms by their own free patriotic impulse. They consisted of citizens, who in defending their country were performing the primary and most important civic duty. For the discharge of this duty they received no remuneration. The burdens connected with it they had themselves to pay from their own means. 
the richer citizens were called upon to provide themselves with the more costly armour required by the men in the front ranks and of course they had to bear the brunt of battle as compensation for these services they had a greater number of votes in the popular assembly it was evident that with such a military organization the lowest ranks of the citizens could not have been called upon to take any part in the national defence or else that their service must have been very subordinate in progress of time the military duties were found to press too heavily upon the rich and a more equal distribution was necessary the old division of classes and the old difference of arms were modified the soldiers of the legions were divided into two classes only the heavy-armed and the light-armed the arms were furnished by the state and consequently the comitia of centuries which continued to be a political body ceased to be a military organization up to the Veientine war however the soldier received no regular pay and in consequence it was unfair and impossible to keep men for a long time away from their domestic pursuits from their fields and workshops the campaigns could not be extended beyond a few weeks or months in summer no military operation therefore could be undertaken which required a long period of service on the approach of winter if not before the men had to be dismissed to their homes and new armies had to be formed on the return of spring now such a procedure might suit the desultory warfare which consisted in making occasional inroads for the sake of plunder but a serious war with a powerful state especially the siege of a large town required armies of a more permanent character armies that were not disbanded in the autumn or disbanded only to be immediately replaced by newly levied forces to accomplish this it was necessary to provide the soldiers with the means of bearing the burden of military service and consequently to pay them from the public treasury this was done in the last war with veii by the advice of camillus it was a measure calculated to work a great change in the military system of the romans and to exercise great influence also on political affairs and on the state of parties it served to equalize the rich and the poor and it acted therefore as a powerful stimulus in bringing to a final settlement the long-continued struggle of the patricians and the plebeians with their newly organized armies the romans laid siege to the city of veii and kept it blockaded summer and winter but the fortune of war was variable more than once the veientines broke through the besieging army and carried the war into the vicinity of rome we hear of defeats sustained by the roman legions the war was protracted to the tenth year at length furius camillus was appointed dictator and he soon led the legions to victory that veii was taken by the romans under camillus is a fact beyond dispute but the mode of its conquest is hidden in a cloud of fables we are told that in the course of the war the alban lake rose miraculously to such a height that it threatened to flood the whole plain of latium the romans looking upon this phenomenon as a sign sent from the gods were informed by an etruscan soothsayer and also by the delphian oracle that if they constructed a channel to draw off the water of the lake they would obtain possession of the hostile town they immediately set to work constructed a channel in the side of the hill and thus permanently lowered the level of the lake making the water at the same time available for irrigating the plain below while this work was in progress they continued the siege of veii here also they availed themselves of tunnelling camillus caused an underground passage to be constructed from his camp 
right into the citadel of Veii. When this was finished, he caused the attention of the besieged to be divested by sham attacks on the walls, whilst with a chosen band he penetrated through the tunnel into the town and came out in the very temple of Juno, the protecting deity of Veii, at the moment when the king was in the act of offering up sacrifice, and when the priest had just exclaimed that this sacrifice was a pledge of victory. At that auspicious moment Camillus, we are told, broke into the temple, snatched the offering from the hands of the king, and flung it into the fire on the altar. The Romans issuing from the tunnel fell upon the rear of the Veientines, opened the gates, let in their comrades, and obtained possession of the town. Veii was taken and sacked. The people who did not fall in battle were led away as captives and sold as slaves. The victorious army returned laden with spoils, and Camillus, mounted on a car drawn by white horses and dressed in the garments of Jupiter, celebrated a triumph such as had never been witnessed before. But a great reverse was in store both for the victorious leader and for his people. In vain had Camillus in the moment of victory attempted to avert the jealousy of the gods by a fervent prayer that if they thought him guilty of overweening pride they should inflict a merciful punishment. Whilst he uttered his prayer he had his head veiled as was customary, and turning round on his feet he stumbled and fell to the ground. This slight mishap he fondly hoped had conciliated the gods, but he soon found out his error. Instead of gratitude, he reaped hatred and persecution. He was charged with having unjustly appropriated a part of the spoils, with having exhibited impious pride and presumption because of the pomp displayed in his triumph, and with depriving the people of the fruits of their victory by inducing the Senate to pass a decree that the tenth part of all the spoils should be dedicated as an offering to the Delphian Apollo. So great was the animosity of the people against him that he was compelled to leave Rome and go into exile. Such is the wonderful account of the capture of Veii and of the exploits and the fate of Camillus. That it is fictitious in all its details needs no proof. It was evidently made up at a time when the actual facts were forgotten, and it was made up by men who had more talent for dramatic composition than for historical research, men who were not even familiar with the laws and habits of the Roman people. The charge, for instance, that Camillus committed sacrilege by assuming the garb of Jupiter when he entered Roman triumph is utterly futile. We know that this was the habit of all the Roman triumphatores. By personating, as it were, Jupiter, they were far from any sinful arrogance or impiety. On the contrary, they intended thereby to imply that it was Jupiter himself who triumphed over the enemies of Rome. The idea of Veii being taken by a tunnel, driven through the rocky hill into the midst of the town, is simply ridiculous, and was perhaps suggested by the notion that the channel for the water of the Alban Lake was the cause of the fall of Veii. Whether this channel was actually constructed or only repaired at that time, we have no means of knowing. It certainly did exist, and exists even now, but except in the superstition of an ignorant age, it could have no connection with the capture of a distant town. The message to the Oracle of Delphi is no doubt only a late version of the older story, which attributes the prophecy to an Etruscan soothsayer. Nor does the statement deserve credit that the tenth part of the Veientine spoils were sent as a present to the Delphian shrine, although it is adorned with detail intended to make it plausible. At the period in question, 
the romans had perhaps not even heard of the delphian apollo and certainly never dreamt of consulting him nor of sending him golden offerings thus nothing can be really ascertained but the bare fact that in the year 396 bc the city of veii was after a protracted siege taken by the romans we do not even know certainly whether rome was aided in this magnificent conquest by any other etruscan towns but as we hear that sutrium and nepete to the north of veii were afterwards the allies of rome we may at any rate conjecture that they had a part in the subversion of veii other cities of etruria may have taken a part in the war tarquinii and caere appear to have been neutral but capena and falerii are mentioned as allies of the veientines falerii after the fall of veii was implicated in hostilities with rome a story better known than it deserves to be is related of this war camillus it is said laid siege to the town during this siege a schoolmaster of falerii treacherously delivered into his hands a number of noble children as hostages but was ignominiously sent back into the town to be punished for his intended treason the faliscans overcome not by the arms but by the generosity of their foes surrendered this story is condemned as a silly fiction not only by its intrinsic improbability but by the undoubted fact that falerii continued for a long time afterwards to be an independent town the territory acquired by the conquest of veii was about equal to the old possessions of rome in extent and fertility it offered a magnificent field to roman colonists for according to the custom of ancient warfare it was entirely at the disposal of the conquerors who could appropriate as much of it as they thought expedient a part was actually distributed in equal lots of seven ugera to roman settlers the majority of the veientine citizens who were not killed or sold or left to till the soil were transported as slaves to rome and may have proved a valuable accession of skilled workmen rome was evidently on the road to a rapid development when the nemesis of the gods whom camillus had in vain attempted to propitiate brought upon her a reverse which seemed hardly less terrible than the fate of veii six years after the triumph of camillus rome was a heap of ruins and the roman people a homeless herd of exiles were seeking shelter and refuge in the city of their late enemies End of section twenty six